I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Software development has evolved a lot in the last decades, from shipping software on magnetic tapes to just downloading it with a click of a button, it has transformed the way organizations work. Paula Paul, technology principal at ThoughtWorks, explains what it was like to write software on punch cards and how it was transformed. Paula also talked about her work on bringing cloud technologies to different organizations, continuous integration, and container orchestration. Early in her career, Paula worked with a lot of women in engineering. She witnessed the drop of women technologists and how companies are trying to change that right now. ThoughtWorks is a company that has succeeded at this. We talked about what they're doing and what other companies can do. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Paula Paul, technology principal at ThoughtWorks, is joining us today. Paula, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Early in your career, you worked on mainframe product development at IBM, and you shipped your first software product on a magnetic tape. What was it like to work in technology at that time? Well, it was different in many ways. Uh, the technology and programming itself is similar. I mean, branching and looping and the constructs of programming is the same as it was then. Um, I would say the environment was different. You uh, didn't have uh, real-time compilation and feedback on the code that you were writing. The delivery times were a lot longer, of course, because... You know, sending a job down to compile might take a couple hours and you'd go down to the raised floor and pick up the printout or the fan-folded green bar paper, check the compile. There was no uh, GitHub, so we actually gave clean listings to our librarian who was a person, kept a few copies in the file cabinet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that was the first eight or so years of my career, and then I moved into the PC industry uh, where we finally got all the great tooling that we have today. People were a little different as well. Actually, I worked with more women and underrepresented, what we now call underrepresented groups in my early career than I do now. Because in your earlier career, there were more women in the field or? I actually worked for, a, my first manager was a person of color and the person who managed the A-team developers was a woman. So I actually worked with more technical women in my early career. Uh, through probably uh, when I left IBM in 1992, and then seemed like women and you know, underrepresented groups of people became a little less common. So it was that time when that shift happened, right? There, there used to be more women in the field, then something happened, I think, in the late 80s that there were less women. So you witnessed that shift, is what you're saying? Yes, yes, I did, unfortunately. Wow, that's very interesting. And during this time, you also said, there were no tools like GitHub and things like that. So was version control managed manually, like you said? There were some printed copies of the software or? Yep, 
(laughs) And uh, the other piece was, you know, you only had so many copies of the listings in the file cabinet. And if you thought you wanted to go back to earlier copies, you could call down to the raised floor and have them send up uh, microfiche. So I had a microfiche reader in my office and you would just uh, kind of like you would look at old newspaper now you would look at old versions of code <laughs> mm-hmm. wow that's awesome <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I, I actually um have a, a punch card when you left ibm in those days sometimes you would go with the group and you, they would give you a punch card so i still kept it it's my lucky punch card and i have yeah. a lot of fun explaining to people how um, punch cards worked and I always also say that's just been in my career and I still code uh, so it would be interesting to see in you know younger people's careers what they think is going to change just in their career just for our listeners that are not familiar with the punch car what is the general idea of this Sure. It's um, if you can picture a, a piece of cardstock uh, a few inches tall by, say, eight or nine inches wide, um, and it's an encoded card, you were allowed to have, say, 80 lines per card, which each card would represent one statement in whatever language you were programming in. Uh, so, you know, you couldn't write these lengthy variable names and have lengthy, you know, if statements or are all sorts of logic in one statement. So you'd make a a program by having a line of code or a statement on each card, and your program would be a stack of those cards, sometimes a large stack, and there was no terminal, so you would, you know, type onto each of these cards and then Mm -hmm. take the stack and feed it into a card reader, which would translate that into something that the mainframe would have as a batch job to compile the code and you know, typically create object, and then you would link it and create an executable through a lengthy process. <laughs> yeah, wow. One thing that I find interesting is people like you that got to work on these things and then are witnessing now you know, better tools. We have more memory on computers. I've heard it still brings the other perspective of I have to write a short if statement or make sure everything is compact because you're used to having this hardware limitations. Would you say that's correct? I think that you're aware of it. <laughs> so I do think about those things, about the compactness of the code, but I'm also very in favor of readability and simplicity mm-hmm. and making things efficient. So it does take some care sometimes to think about why you're writing the code and for what so it's something that, you know, because I've been programming for such a long time, you have seen these waves of different styles. And certainly now the benefits of Agile or, you know, XP. So those things all adapt our ways of programming to the capacity and the capability of our systems, right? You said memory, um, storage, compute power, all those things, Moore's Law. So the styles of programming and the ways that we program have adapted to our, our capacity. You're currently working at ThoughtWorks. And in my research for this, I saw that you found ThoughtWorks through the Grace Hopper Conference. Can you explain what ThoughtWorks does? 
Sure. So ThoughtWorks is a technology services company. We do consult, and it's been around for quite some time. Is actually the the core people at ThoughtWorks were around and were part of the Agile Revolution, the Agile Manifesto, and bringing Agile into the mainstream. So that is tech at core. Our customers tend to have very challenging problems with technology and they bring us in to solve those challenging problems. Anything from uh, staying competitive to really becoming an agile organization to organizational transformation, using technology to build competitive advantage in their businesses. And agile was a pretty big concept, I think, that transformed software development, right? Absolutely, because I mean, it was, it's the perfect thing to go from the mainframe and waterfall, which we had to be waterfall because of the constraints and the time it took to actually build software to a lot of those constraints being lifted while you needed a new methodology to build software and Agile was it. Yeah, exactly. Like we were talking earlier, code was being written in punch cards, so physical cards, then you would physically store copies of the software. So yes, naturally... More of a step-by-step process seemed to work better, right? Yep, and it took care to write it because it took so long to get a compile back, whereas now you can kind of iterate very quickly on very small pieces of code and see results. And you have to do less planning now, right? Because you can get it wrong and then just keep improving versus in the previous times it was really plan every single thing to make sure it works. Yeah, I think that's part of where you can start to get some misunderstandings. I think that no matter what, whether you're coding on punch cards or agile, you still need to have a very clear vision of what you're building and why. So past that, I think the means by which you actually develop varies based on the capacity you have. So I still, even today, you still need to have a very strong vision of what you're doing, product orientation, you know, platform thinking. So those things haven't changed, just the means by which we achieve them are a little different these days. Yeah. Just to get an idea, what are the types of clients of ThoughtWorks? They are all industries, some very large clients and some small. We also have what we call a P3 uh, pillar, which is social and economic justice. So we try to find ways to use technology to advance the social good worldwide. Uh, ThoughtWorks is all around the world, um, many countries, many offices around the world. Some of our clients are very large financial services companies, they're retail companies. Uh, Some on our website, companies like Gap, have been partnering with ThoughtWorks on their technology vision for many, many years. So it varies, it runs the gamut. My particular group is digital platform strategy, and we help companies move to a pure digital platform and uh, take the most advantage of their existing technology assets while trying to give them the benefits of uh, digital natives, you know, companies like Spotify or Netflix that have gotten the knack of how to get the most out of these new digital platforms if you are a you know an older company you may not have had the benefit of of just starting out from a a pure digital landscape and part of your work involves in bringing cloud native technologies to these organizations like you said they didn't 
started out recently. So they sort of need to be modernized. And they have investments in non-cloud native technology. What are examples of this non-cloud native technology? Oh, several of our clients have existing data centers that they own and manage, physical computing equipment, network devices, and there's a process by which you can say, well, how much of that is really to our benefit to manage ourselves? What pieces of it are better suited for the cloud where we can iterate and experiment more rapidly. And it's a tough problem because it's not just a technology problem, it's a, a skill set decision. It's a, it's a long process and ThoughtWorks is a great partner to stay with companies for the long haul through those kinds of transformations. So they sort of help you decide do you really need to keep those data centers? Because not everybody does, right? Because it can translate to you're spending more money because you have your own servers and maybe you don't need them, for example, in December because people don't use your product because of the holidays and things like that, right? Sure. You know, there's decisions about, well, you have the data centers. What's the right thing to keep in your data centers? Yeah. Uh, what are the right things to maybe have a, a hybrid solution and move to a, a cloud where you can have... Uh, rapid release cycles versus some of our clients may still be on like monthly release cycles of core software that drives their business and some pieces of that might be better off moving to a cloud environment where you can have continuous integration and continuous delivery of new experiences. And once you move to the cloud you're leveraging the technology from the company that you're using the cloud from right they build this expertise around this for example, AWS with Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. That's an advantage. Sure. So AWS or Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud, um, there's different levels of adoption of those technologies. One would be just purely IaaS or infrastructure as a service, where instead of having your own physical racks and servers and network equipment, you're basically using that equipment from Google or IBM or Microsoft. Other levels might be platform as a service if you're uh, using some of the you know platform solutions like Pivotal from a cloud-based environment. There's a number of approaches to and levels to adoption of the cloud technologies. Yes, I want to talk about this process and the approaches, or at least one of them if you want. When you're starting to work with the client, what are the steps that you start looking at to determine the best strategy to move technology to the cloud? Well, it starts with the business itself and what pieces of technology provide the capabilities to the business. If it's a, a retailer or an insurance company, say, uh, what pieces of technology provide experiences where you're getting new customers, you're driving new business, you're driving new revenue for your company. What are the processes involved in that? What are the pieces of technology involved in that? How often are you able to extend them or improve them? What kinds of release cycles are you on? So by starting with the business, we can say, okay, 
well, what pieces of technology are constraining you right now? What pieces of technology are slowing you down from growing your business, from getting new customers, from building new and innovative experiences for your customers? We would typically start at that end, I call it that end of the business, versus uh, if you go all the way through from customer acquisition, through product sales, opportunities, uh, delivery, fulfillment, billing, that type of thing on the billing and servicing side, some of those systems can be quite heavy. And you might say, well, if I completely replace my existing billing system or my existing you know, accounts payable system, move that to the cloud. One of the questions I always ask is, well, that could take a lot of work. And if we do that, how many new customers and how much new revenue is that going to drive? So mm-hmm. I would always start by looking at things that will drive new revenue opportunities as ways to start. Do these companies normally have logs where they can give insight of the usage metrics and things like that? Some do. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I was curious about that because I had a feeling maybe they cannot answer these questions completely. No, and sometimes it it takes spending time with the client and their operations teams, technology teams, and and really doing that, uh, you know, forensic engineering. That might even be the first step, right? Let's gather some data in order to determine what the best strategy is. Right. Yep. Starting with the business and then that is the, the uncovering how those capabilities are fulfilled today. That's the forensic engineering part. You also help clients adopt container orchestration and containers can be thought as these lightweight, scalable VMs. Why should organizations look at adopting this? So Container orchestration. Well, this is now the next evolution of things that I I joke about from my mainframe days. (laughs) And it is interesting that we have software applications or capabilities or services today. Um, You know, we now talk about things like microservices. Any kind of software capability has to be deployed somewhere. So in you know, mainframe days, those were lengthy and convoluted processes to launch them in a, a large kind of a monolithic mainframe environment. And maybe we eventually got to partitions, partitioning memory, partitioning the processor with, you know, multiprocessing. Those things evolved in the mainframe era. And now we went through, I just want to deploy a server in my data center, a physical server, then I deploy my software on that physical server to then, okay, let's virtualize our servers. And we have these nice things like VMware and virtualization and Microsoft Hyper-V. And so now we have even more lightweight containers, lightweight Linux containers, or in you know Azure world, they have Windows containers. They're more lightweight than a full virtual machine. Now, when you start deploying these more lighter weight containers, they need to be orchestrated or managed just in the same sorts of ways that you would manage multiple virtual machines in a hypervisor. Mm-hmm. That kind of management includes you know, networking and easily scaling or easily replicating those services. So those 
concepts have been around for a long time, but the tooling to do it with these more lightweight containers, lightweight Linux containers, lightweight Windows containers, um, the tooling to do that has really become much more mainstream. You have things like Kubernetes that make you know, assembling and managing a group of these more lightweight containers much more feasible. So part of this adoption is like you said, to streamline this process and to make it easier, save time, save resources. Exactly. That's why companies should be looking at this. Yes, and you are using less compute resources. The lighter weight containers take less capacity. So if you have five full virtual machines that you need to manage, that's going to consume more resources than five lightweight Linux containers or five lightweight Windows containers. When you're working with these clients, you're also building pipelines for continuous integration and continuous delivery. What is the difference between these two? Continuous integration would be, uh, say, I'm writing some code and I work locally. I've done my testing. Everything looks ready. I commit. As soon as I commit, that code should be put into all of the necessary environments. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to uh, arrange, you know, a monthly release of that code and you spend the weekend fixing the issues from it. So you have a much more uh, natural and immediate flow of capabilities into production. What about continuous delivery? Or is the line between them blurry? <laughs> oh, I think I kind of ran the two together. So I, you know, from, oh, okay, a, okay. Yeah, from a developer, I think about continuous integration is what happens when I commit my code, of course, and then the continuous delivery being the pipeline of how do those things then manifest all the way through the environments into the hands of the business users. Okay, I see. And what are the components of a continuous integration pipeline? Like even in the technology stack? What are the things that are in place in this pipeline? Certainly the source code (laughs) and the processes by which you build software, uh, test-driven development, the automation of testing so that when I commit code, those tests are run and you get, you know, green light environments that the code is just flowing into Mm -hmm. the next level of environments all the way through to production. I'm not sure exactly what you're looking for, but, you know. Yes, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Okay, automated testing, uh, delivery pipelines that avoid having to involve third parties to move artifacts into a production environment. And pieces in place that prevent from having major regressions in the software, right? Which is why testing is a fundamental component of this. Yes, exactly. How long can it take to have these pipelines set up, for example, in one of your clients? Just a rough idea. Setting them up it can actually be quite quick. I would say that uh, one of my favorite sayings is the technology is the easy part. Okay. So it's more of the people side of adopting the practices and adopting the discipline and getting the muscle memory around code delivery and continuous delivery. Yes, and that can be difficult. I've seen this where people are used to working with a certain tool for decades, and then there comes this new, better tool that changes the paradigm of how you work. And that can be hard for people. They can be scared of adopting new technology sometimes. Is that what you mean? Yes, 
Yes, or even as you've seen vendors go through major changes. I worked for Microsoft for a few years as a Microsoft consulting services professional to help people adopt .NET when they had been working in, you know, say Visual Basic. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Microsoft has changed greatly in the past few years moving to you know if, if you're familiar there's team foundation server there's a different level a different style of version control now microsoft allows their developers to say use git we're uh, using git now <laughs> I, I that's what's actually what i was referring to when i first joined i saw the shift from tfs and the old version control to git mm -hmm. and since i was already familiar with it i would speak with more senior devs like this is awesome these are the benefits and they would at first be a little bit skeptical but once they tried it they're like oh yeah there's no looking back at this point <laughs> but that's a tough shift yeah. that's one of many tough shifts because you know classic asp.net well i also think that that stack sort of missed a lot of the other kind of JavaScript library or JavaScript framework oriented exactly. uh, things that were going on during those years. And we've come a long way because now Microsoft created TypeScript, a superset of JavaScript, widely popular open source, and then Google used it to create Angular 2.0. Yeah. So we've, we've come a long way in terms yeah. of adopting, I think, new technologies. It's amazing to me because I also you know work with a lot of people who come from all sorts of different stack backgrounds, Microsoft, non-Microsoft, and even those people have different perceptions of each other. And, and, you know, if you've kind of come along the Microsoft stack, you may have, you know, impressions of people who aren't on the Microsoft stack, and those people have impressions of what Microsoft developers are like, but I do believe that now we're almost all doing the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Microsoft put .NET Core in open source. We've got great things like TypeScript and Angular. Angular's from Google, TypeScript's from Microsoft. So I am kind of uh, looking forward to everyone just saying, well, we're all doing the same sorts of things. Another area in organizations is to have systems in place to restrict access or grant access depending on the person that's using the organization's resources and this is known as identity management which you also work on establishing for your clients how can identity management be implemented what are some of the ways identity management is one of the first things that we tackle when we talk to people about adopting digital platforms it's a cornerstone. It's almost like saying, um, I'm standing up a new data center. What's the first thing you want to do? Establish network connectivity. And as soon as you have packets flowing, you need to have identity management and security in place. You know, unfortunately, I think sometimes it's an afterthought. Yeah. We actually address that as one of the very th first things we talk to people about in a, a platform engagement. What are the ways? Again, you have to understand, well, what are they using for identity management now? You know, is it all in an on-premise directory? You know, we talked about Microsoft. Is it all in an active directory environment? What are the forests and so forth? And then what are the appropriate steps if we move some pieces of that capability to the cloud? What are the appropriate sources for identity management in the cloud? And how do you reconcile or um, integrate 
that new source of identity management with the existing, again, several options. But for most of our customers, certainly they already have some sort of identity management, and it's about understanding what that is and then the best way to bridge it to a future platform. And sometimes making sure you maintain it for example, one person can have access at one point, but then they move to a different team or a different project, then revoking that access. And just, I guess that's what it means by management. You're constantly determining who should be looking at the data. And there is a difference between pure identity management or authentication and the authorization to what assets that identity should have access to. Um, Sometimes the access management or the authorization is purely a function of a particular piece application like a database management system or a particular application like you know the accounts payable system so it's a complex topic and identity management is really one of the first pieces just how do we identify a person or a service account and then the authorization of that identity is another very complicated piece because of all of the different kinds of services and data that you need to lock down and secure. Like we mentioned earlier, ThoughtWorks has been around for several years. They pioneer the concept of agile development. One thing that I'm really curious of, since you work with several clients, is time management. Or when you work with clients, I assume that they ask you, Roughly, how long will it take for us to do X? How do you calculate this time duration of a project? We, (laughs) I would say a lot of this is classic consulting, technology consulting. And as in agile development, you carve out things in small steps. So a small step, you can be a little more confident of how much effort and time duration is going to be needed. If a client comes in and says, uh, for instance, we want to move our entire data center to the cloud, how long will that take? Of course, I would be very skeptical that anyone could put forth an estimate of any, (laughs) any accuracy. So it's about breaking those things down and maybe even in some cases asking, well, let's understand the motivation for this in the first place. Is it cost? Is it capacity? Is it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people who are departing the organization and you need a different solution? So depending on the real reasons, it's much easier to carve out the first steps. You know, the the journey of of a thousand miles begins with one step. And most of the time when you break things into the right small steps, there's enough experience in place to say, yes, we have done this kind of work in the past and typically here's how long it would take. Okay. So by experience, you come up with better times for the small tasks. Yes. And really understanding the motivation and the business driver and breaking it down. At the very beginning, we talked about how when you were at IBM and when you were early in your career, there were a lot of women in the field and then you witness this drop in women engineers. I was at Grace Hopper this year, in 2017 in Orlando, and I saw ThoughtWorks was named by the Anita Borg Institute as a top company for women technologists. Since you've seen the ups and downs in the industry, 
How do you see now in ThoughtWorks the ways in which the company is creating equal opportunities? I see a lot of ways. And I was also at the Grace Hopper Conference uh, this oh, year. Okay. It was so I wish awesome. I had known. <laughs> was awesome. I've been there three years now. And as you mentioned, I met ThoughtWorks at the Grace Hopper Conference and subsequently came to join them because of this. They won the award last year. And I do see a lot of uh, women in leadership roles, certainly, you know, Joanna and Rebecca. We have a wonderful woman, Rachel Laycock, who's the head of technology in North America. Mm-hmm. And I work with more women at ThoughtWorks than I have for probably the past, say, 15 or 20 years of my career. So mm-hmm. so it's been terrific. And I do see with the growth of the Grace Hopper Conference, I find it very encouraging. I have to admit that I find uh, fewer women in you know my own decade that are still exploring things like you know angular and how to you know build software for the modern age functional programming but i know they're out there i think that there was a a big decline in the late 80s and early 90s but i do now see that those numbers are starting to come back up again so i i want to make sure that i I'm there for those women if they want to yeah. talk to women who have been around longer and I want to make sure that I support their careers absolutely so that we don't do this again. <laughs> exactly. So what you said in ThoughtWorks there are women in leadership positions. I guess that's one approach, right? Leading by example, just placing competent women in leadership positions and then Showing that it does work, right? That sadly, there are a lot of skepticals that doubt this, but it's not true. So just setting the example of having them as leaders, right, is one of the ways. Yeah, and I think that there are studies, these kinds of things came out at the Grace Hopper Conference and elsewhere, that having diverse teams is having more profitable teams and more successful teams. So I do think that companies are starting to figure out that diversity matters. I've done a few talks on diversity, and I always tell the story of the design work done on the original airbags for cars. Uh, being done by an all-male team. So the original airbags for cars were designed to save a 175-pound male of a certain height. And the original airbags were very dangerous to people who weren't of that size. So I think that having diverse teams is really critical if you want to have a good product. Mm -hmm. And even in that example that you just mentioned, I think... Several women and babies died, right? Children. Yes, it was very tragic by the time they realized what was the root cause of, of you know, the design flaw. Sometimes what I think is, even if a lot of companies are coming forward saying we want to create inclusive environments and things like that, it can be difficult because people come from different backgrounds and they have their own biases. Subtle comments that, for example, I had in school where, oh, you have it easy in this major, you're a girl, a lot of people are willing to help you. So small things like that, I think, is very critical to fix, but it can be hard. How do you think companies can sort of re-educate these people? Would it be with 
rule-based systems like have a certain guideline of behavior where you set a clear examples of things that you can say that can be offensive? Uh, it's a hard problem. You know, just having rules, I think it is important to have good guidelines. Mm -hmm. But the small things, the things that you mentioned, those are the difficult ones. And I mean, even today, you know, I join a a project or I may be at a client and, you know, if I'm introduced, um, maybe somebody would say, oh, do you still code? Whereas if I were male, I don't think that I would be asked that question. So these kinds of little things, yeah. you know, you can't go ballistic over those little things, but they do happen. The way that I think we get ourselves out of this situation that we're in is one, acknowledge one of the reasons that we did get into this situation was I do believe that the media did in the late 80s and early 90s uh, glorify the image of a techie as a certain type of person and it was you know a lot of media exposure to young aggressive male techies mm -hmm. and I do think the media needs to help us get out of it I do think that one of the things that's encouraging, even though it's a dual-edged sword, is that social media helps us point things out. So, you know, that, that also has its downsides and trolling and so forth. But I do think that it helps start the conversation. I just think that for a company like ThoughtWorks, the fact that we have so many women technologists, having those women on projects at clients doing the technical work, leading the technical initiatives, that provides a visible reinforcement to the fact that technology is something that everyone can do. It's going to take some time, but yeah. I would encourage any technology services company to do what ThoughtWorks does and make sure that they do put women front and center in their projects be the example of what technology should look like. And, uh, you know, I just think it's going to take some time. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, is there anything else that you see in ThoughtWorks as a culture or on a regular basis that they're doing that is creating this more inclusive environment? For example, are there any internal events or things like that? It's a great company, and I do see internal events. I see leadership training. I see just opportunities to collaborate with people of, you know, all types of people. It is a wonderful culture. If you talk to anyone at ThoughtWorks, they'll probably say it as well. It's a bunch of very passionate and purposeful individuals, and they are very conscious of the way that people want to be treated, referred to, their identities, you know, like nowhere I've ever worked before. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think it is just a, a very unique culture. Um, and maybe the advice is maybe other companies should start to talk to ThoughtWorks about how they're winning these awards, like the best places for women in technology and try to emulate that. Yes, definitely. Well, Paula, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs>